It looks like here we have left everybody who is sticking around for the holidays, or maybe you're going out on Monday, but uh, thanks for being with us here today, guys. It's so good to see you. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and um, if, you bought, if you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull it out. We're going to be using that today. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there are some place down at the ends of your rows. Go ahead and ask your, uh, your neighbor to pass that down for you if you're on the inside. Um, and when you get a Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Luke is the third gospel account. Uh, there's four gospel accounts that start the New Testament. And those just record the, the birth, the life, the teaching, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And Luke is the third one. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke. Um, that's in the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. If you need to use the table of contents, there's no shame in using that. So, Great. Well, welcome, guys. Uh, I don't know if you guys knew this, but um, ad, uh, this is technically the fourth Sunday on the church calendar of Advent, of Advent. And Advent is actually one of my favorite uh, times of the year. I, I love it. Um, if you don't know uh, what Advent means, Advent is just the Latin word uh, for coming, for coming. And, and historically, the Christian church has used the month of December to lean into the two comings of Christ. Um, that, that might surprise you a bit because Christmas in our greater culture uh, seems to emphasize this guy named Santa and baby Jesus, okay? But those are not the two comings of Advent, okay? Those are not the two comings of Advent, okay? Santa, he comes every year, okay? He comes every year, so he's not, he doesn't get one of the Advent comings. The two comings of Advent refer to baby Jesus and then Jesus coming again at his promised return at a someday in the future that we're unsure of, Okay? And the question is, well, why is Advent concerned with both of these then? Why both of them? Well, that's what, to answer that question, you have to understand the linked nature of Jesus' comings, okay? Um, in Jesus' first coming, he promised this second coming. But in this first coming, he was always talking about this kingdom of God. Everywhere he went, he just talked about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And his first coming actually served to spark the inauguration of this kingdom of God. And now he continues to bring his kingdom um, to the earth even now through people whom he's given his spirit to and, and, and asked us to go make disciples of all the world. But then he also promised that when he comes again, when he comes back again, that the kingdom of God will be brought in full. So, so the, the comings of Jesus are really linked through an understanding of what really was Jesus' central and obsessive focus of the kingdom of God. He was always talking about it. He was talking about it everywhere he went. People were always asking him about it. He was always clarifying about it. Some of the most kind of ambiguous and strange statements from the Bible come from Jesus talking about this kingdom of God. And, and it's really important to get these advents uh, in, in order, that, like really in, in order of magnitude, Okay. Um, Jesus' first coming is just a small taste of what the second coming is going to be like. Um, it was just like a, a small tapa. Have you guys heard of these things called tapas? Tapas? Yes, no? I had not heard of tapas myself until I was 28 years old. And, and I had a tapa, and I ate it, and it was magnificent. It was so, so good. And I said, this is just like Jesus' first coming. This is what pastors do. We liken everything to something spiritual. This is just like Jesus' first coming. This is a little starter that's very, very delicious, not filling at all, right? They're amazing, but they're still going to leave you longing for more food. They're really not going to fill you up unless you're like a rodent, I would suppose. Tapas, very small, very delicious, not filling, okay? This is a great way to understand the advents of Jesus. Jesus' first coming is just little tapa. It's just a little topic, very extraordinary. We, we see the beauty of Jesus arrive on the scene, the way that he loves, remarkable. The miracles he does, incredibly powerful. But then he's gone, just like a tapa. And we're like, wait a sec. We want more of that. Just like when you eat a tapa, you're like, okay, now I'm ready for the full meal. Jesus' second advent is that full meal that he promises. It's gonna come, it's gonna fill us up more fully. It's promised, it's coming. So, so that's kind of how you can order the magnitudes of these advents. We've got top of Jesus and then full dinner Jesus is coming. 
And in the, fa- the past few weeks, we've seen how Jesus brought this kind of in top of form, this peace and joy to the world when he first came. And then he continues to bring it through his people in the now, and he promised, he promised full peace and joy at some point in the future. Okay? Now, peace and joy, they're desires that we all have. That's how we've been talking about them. One could say that they're, that they're needs of the, the human soul, that deep down we long for peace and joy. They're some of the, the basic parts of just human striving, peace and joy. And today, on this, on this final Sunday of Advent, we're going to focus on what is our greatest need, our greatest desire that we all long for and strive for. You could even say it's our most fundamental need. I'm not going to tell it to you quite yet. I'm going to, I'm going to slow play this. We need to do a little bit of work before we get there, okay? And, and the work that we're going to do is we're going to look at it by examining a song from the lips of Jesus' mother, Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. And Mary's song, it's perhaps the best place to go for you and I to reflect on the real meaning of Advent, of this coming of Jesus. Because if you think about it, before anyone else, she was the first to begin to consider the implications of this child. She was the first person to consider Advent. She had a head start on everybody else, really considering on processing what this baby meant. You could even say that this song we're about to read is the first Christmas song that was ever sung. It comes from the lips and the heart of teenage pregnant Mary. It's really beautiful. Now, now some of you guys, and, and that's some of you males, um, probably just had a thought, and it goes like this. Um, yeah, yeah, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Jesus hasn't come quite yet. And I would say, just try telling that to a pregnant woman. I've tried it. It doesn't go well at all. It, it, a baby in the womb of a woman is very real, very tangible. That baby is cr- like cramping her style in very real ways. But then it's also the presence of that child is very, very, very real. In much more way than it is for a, a man whose wife is pregnant. Uh, it's just an idea to us. We're like, okay, there's a baby. It's just an idea. It's not real or tangible yet. Then it comes out. Just ask any couple who's had to process this. You know, it's, it's a very real reality. Mary is experiencing this coming of Jesus as the first person on earth. And so she's going to highlight our greatest need for us. Okay, so here's the background of this song that we're about to read. The song starts in verse 46. But a, first, a few verses prior, we see that Mary was visited by an angel named Gabriel. Gabriel. And, and Gabriel kind of laid out all the things that were going to happen to her. And her response is she's pretty scared. She's terrified. Very reasonably so to be terrified of all this stuff is going to happen. Very uncertain, very strange phenomena that's described to her. But then she, she really demonstrated an enormous amount of courage and she received the words of Gabriel from God. She received God's word breaking into her life and, and said the really famous phrase, let it be done to me as you have said according to your word. And then around the same time, uh, Mary finds out that her relative Elizabeth was also pregnant. Now Elizabeth was very old and she was actually hiding this pregnant for a long time. Elizabeth is about five or six months pregnant. And this is what would have been equally surprising to Mary because Elizabeth beyond childbearing years. She was very old. And, and the circumstances surrounding her, pre- her pregnancy that Luke tells us at the beginning of the chapter were likewise miraculous. And so we have this meeting of these two pregnant women. At the beginning of the gospel account of Luke, both pregnant miraculously by God. And, and, and they're both rejoicing and encouraging one another. When they meet, it looks like this. Uh, Look at it in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country. In, In those days just means after Gabriel had told her she was going to be pregnant. Into the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord 
should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed or happy is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Elizabeth's baby leaps for joy in her womb, which we learn later is John the Baptist. And Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and and she prophesies. She, She communicates God's word to Mary, telling her that this child that you're about to have will be unlike any child that's ever born. Now picture this for a second. An old woman, miraculously pregnant herself, telling little teenage Mary, who is from a poor family, that her child will be the greatest child that's ever born. And with that little teenage Mary, she can't contain herself any longer. She, she's filled with emotion, and she does what a, lot of us are, what a lot of us do, and we're filled with emotion. She exploded in song, a song of praise to God, the first Christmas song. Let's read the first couple of verses of it here. It's in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, From now on, all generations will call me blessed. An emotion-filled proclamation, a song that she's singing. And and there's lots of things to say about these first few verses, but the the most important is this notion of magnify. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, what does that mean? This isn't language that we use in everyday Right? What, what does that actually mean? If, if you grew up Catholic, you know that this song is called the Magnificat. Perhaps it's labeled as such in the heading of your Bible like it is mine. And, and, and that is just the Latin word for magnify, which is that first line of the song here. But, but what does it mean? What is Mary's soul up to when she says that it magnifies the Lord? Well, well magnifies is translated from the Greek word megalune, megalune, okay? Mega is the Greek adjective for something great. We still use it today in that same way. So megalune, it really means to make something or someone great. And it's happening in Mary's soul and her spirit. So, so to make something or someone great or large in your life. Mary says it's of God. And so this phrase, my soul magnifies the Lord, means that she makes large in her life God. Now, now she she doesn't make him bigger than he is. Uh, She can't increase the size of God, but she is increasing God's presence in her own life, okay? Or, Or you could even put it like this, she's opening herself up to God's presence in her life, opening herself up to God's presence, for someone's soul to, to megalune, to, to magnify God, it means that God has increasing influence over all aspects of their life. God has increasing influence over all aspects of their life. Now, now we actually have a category for this. This happens all the time. It happens everywhere. Uh, I'm going to give you a few examples. Um, one of the easiest and best examples is what a newborn baby does to a married couple, Okay. When a newborn enters into the world, it has an incredibly increased influence over every aspect of of that married couple. Everything. Uh, Sleep schedules, routines, places they go, thoughts they have, future plans they make, budgets, vacation, everything. There's nothing the baby doesn't touch. And hopefully, the parents give the baby the megalune the baby needs in order to thrive, okay? Okay. a a new job, a new job. When we get a new job, a lot of us spend more time than just the 40 hours a week that we work it thinking about the new job. We might research a little more aspects about how to do that job better, get some extra training that we need in order for us to do that job better. It has increasing influence elsewhere in our lives. A new job. Um, Another example would be a romantic relationship. This one's really easy to see. 
When, when, uh, a, a new romantic relationship, when you're in that, you realize you're actually thinking about that person far more than you're actually with them, right? You're actually thinking about them often. It, 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 that, that, that's a megalune of sorts. You're going to rearrange the rest of your social life to fit in this new need for lots of one-on-one time that you need in this romantic relationship. That's a megalune of an, a new romantic relationship, reordering and incre- getting increasing influence over the other aspects of your life. One more example, summer in Seattle. Summer in Seattle. We know we're only going get it, to get, get it for 90 days. So we megalune the heck out of summer. Everything gets reordered so that we can get as much sunshine as possible. We use PTO, we take vacations, we just have a blast every night so that we can get uh, each ray of sunshine that we can. We megalune our life in order to maximize summer. Now, if you're anything like me, this is a little bit convicting. In processing this this week, my my soul, and maybe perhaps uh, you guys feel this in some of your hearts as well, um, realize that I tend to do the opposite of Mary. The opposite. I tend to minimize God. We tend to crowd him out with other things. We tend to to megalune other things and not God. But Mary was so taken with God that she wanted God to be an even bigger presence in her life than he was. If you're anything like me, you covet the heart of Mary in this passage. The question becomes, how can I do this? How can we do this? Well, before you swear off children, quit your job, break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend, or cancel all your vacations, hold on for a second. Because the way that we megalune God is counterintuitive. The way that we give him increasing influence in our life isn't that straightforward. You can't give God increasing influence in all areas of your life if you cut off all those areas in your life. Do you see the logic? How is God going to have increasing influence in the romantic relationship you have if you say, I need to get rid of that for God? You can't. You killed it. But I think that's often our knee-jerk reaction but it's not the right one. Now, now Mary could have referenced herself in a lot of different ways here, and this is going to give us a clue as to how we can likewise do this. But, but she lets us know that it's her soul and her spirit that are giving God increasing influence in her life. It's her soul and her, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Well, how does this happen? How does this happen? It's really instructive to look up a couple verses at that last verse of her encounter with the angel Gabriel. Her response is like this, verse 38. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Skip down to verse 45, the second half that Elizabeth speaks to Mary. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now, after this encounter with Gabriel, we're not sure how much time has passed, days, weeks, but Mary eventually erupts in in this song. And this is very instructive. Magnifying God seems to have come from accepting the word of the Lord. Mary accepted the word of the Lord. She had been contemplating it. She had been considering the word of the Lord. She had been in the process of letting it work into her very being, into her soul, into her spirit. Eventually this word works from something that she's heard to something that she understands to something that has been soaking her soul itself deep down. And it's there in her character her will, all that makes up who she is, it's there that she's refined, she's changed, transformed even. She's not singing about something that she intellectually grasps. She says, I'm singing from my soul, from my spirit. The very center of who she is is magnifying God. She's teaching us how to be disciples of Jesus, and it starts with accepting God's word. 
So, so what does this teach us? Accepting God's word is the precondition to giving God increasing influence in our lives, not cutting other things out. Accepting God's word is that precondition. What does this tell us about God? It says that he's not just another competitor for our time. His influence isn't a zero-sum game. It, 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 it's not like, am I going to hang out with my girlfriend tonight or, or, or God? It's not like, am I going to work my job or work for God? This actually, a lot of people have understood magnifying God through these lens through, throughout history. And it's been a detriment it's pulled Christians out of culture, away from important relationships, away from important duties. It's coistered them off somewhere else where God can no longer have influence in greater public. God's not competing with your love for your spouse, your job, your children, your lover, your hobby, your vacations. He's competing with what you consider because what you most deeply consider will be what you give influence over in your entire life. If you consider money, you'll you'll evaluate every part of your life through the lens of money. What's the bottom line? If, if If you consider thrills, you'll evaluate every part of your life with how much fun you're having in mind. If you consider power, you're gonna evaluate every part of your life with how much control you have in every situation. But if you consider God's word, You'll evaluate every part of your life through the lens of how is God's kingdom coming into that area. Now, considering the word of God is going to lead you to magnify and give him increasing influence in all areas of your life, it may, uh, it may lead to God urging you to reorient some of your priorities. Absolutely, that could very much happen. But it's not a precondition. It's not a precondition. It's a byproduct. You see that? It's a byproduct of magnification, not a precondition so that we might magnify better. So, so, so the question then becomes, how can we accept the word of the Lord? How can we do that and consider it like Mary then? Well, let's look at Mary's experience. Let's look at her song. With what kind of people, it's the question that we can ask, what kind of people are gaining, increase, is God gaining increasing influence in their lives? What kind of people is God increasing his influence in their lives? And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me, call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So with who is God gaining increasing influence in their lives? The humble. It's the humble. Now, how can you know if you're humble? Isn't kind of a self-proclamation of humility? (laughs) That's a little bit defeating. (laughs) You ever read the book of Deuteronomy, which is credited to Moses? Uh, His authorship is kind of credited to him. At the end of it, says, and Moses was the most humble man to ever live. <laughs> it's like, really, Moses? Are you? I, I don't think you are anymore, Moses. You know? so it's, it's kind of for that reason, I think, that maybe Joshua and a couple others, but his, his age, Joshua, kind of finished Deuteronomy after he died. But that's a different subject. But anyways, our own humility is difficult to self-diagnose, isn't it? It's, it's difficult, okay? But, but I found uh, there's two main barriers to humility. And, and these are what I, I look for in people when, 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 uh, whenever they're like in conversation or in pastoral meetings, they're trying to ask me to help me help them grow. I'm like, okay, let's examine humility. And these are the two barriers that I look for. The first one that I'll start with is the one that I usually struggle with. Okay. It goes like this. It's not that bad. It's the attitude. It's not that bad. 
For, for, for the most part, when it comes to my motivations, my decisions, my actions, sure, I have shortcomings just like everybody else, but they're not that bad. It's not that bad. I'm not that bad. And this is pride that stems from a lack of self-awareness. This is, this is really only an attitude that we can actually adopt if we compare ourselves to like the, the worst of humanity, dictators and the like, or, or choose to be ignorant of what really is driving us, really motivating us. In, in fact, I tend to think that our motivations are, are often so clearly twisted and selfish that sometimes I think that, that it's that not that bad or I'm not that bad is really just a cover for, I don't care. At least it is my own life. It's a barrier to humility. It ignores the, the, the sickness that is present in, in each of our souls. You, you see, the sickness we see in society at large, it's merely an extension of a, a well-intentioned but twisted population, okay? Um, who here, here's an illustration. Who here has been stuck in traffic ever? Okay, who here, as you've been stuck in traffic, you've been frustrated? All your hands should go up. It's frustrating to be stuck in traffic. Now, do you realize that in that very moment when you're most frustrated with traffic, that you are traffic? <laughs> you are traffic, and that you are contributing to gridlock and represent the object of everybody else's frustration. That's what it means to be stuck in traffic. It means to be traffic. Now, this is just like a, a, a trivial thing, but in a similar way, the ails of society, it come, they come from all who comprise it. it it's, it's a farce to think that they're propagated by just a few powerful people at the top. That may be true, but we're also, we also have a part to play. Now, what, what, what I'm talking about is a, a deeper anthropology that is what constitutes a human, that includes a, a teaching of, of what's come to be known as total depravity, okay? And, and this notion of total depravity has really come to be frequently misunderstood and misused. misused. Um, the doctrine of total depravity has too often been cartooned and caricatured to, 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 to communicate something more like utter depravity, like we're all dung, like we're, there's not anything that great about us. But, but that's actually a, a, a misunderstanding. It's usually done by preachers who don't understand the teaching. It, it, it doesn't say that we are dung or utterly depraved. Total depravity is really just a more sophisticated way of understanding how many parts of us the fall has touched. It says that the fall has touched each and every part of us from our minds to our wills, to our relationships, to our body, to our affections. The fall has touched each part of that within each of us, and all of us, every part of us suffers. And it's really meant to show that when Jesus comes back, this redemption is meant to go equally into each part of our being and redeem us, redeem all those parts of us that we see fallen in the Genesis 3 account. You all are the image of God. There is something incredibly beautiful about that. The image of God is not completely lost through the fall. We're not utterly depraved. It just means that all aspects of us are a little bit twisted, and God needs to come and fix it, okay? And Mary had an understanding of her brokenness. Look at this in verse 47. And my spirit rejoices in God who? God my Savior. She calls God her Savior. She's found a Savior. For she's looked, he says, for he's looked upon the humble estate of his servant. She recognized that she didn't have much to offer, and yet here is God's grace coming to her. She knows she needs it. Admitting there's a problem and that it's us is always the first step in humility, okay? The second barrier goes like this, okay? We can fix it. We can fix it. This is an attitude um, you might have if when we talk about the coming of Jesus in the future as the balm that is going to heal all brokenness in the future, if your kind of knee-jerk reaction is like, why do we have to wait for that? We can get this done now. One of my favorite historians, I'm a big fan of, of, of history. I read a lot of books about history. One of my favorite historians is named uh, Paul Timothy Johnson. 
Uh, he has this one book out there entitled Intellectuals, where he writes kind of like a dozen brief biographies on individuals who have contributed most to, to modern Western thought. People like Rousseau, Marx, Tolstoy, Hemingway, Bertrand Russell, all these people. It's a great book. Oh, it's so good. Um, if you're looking for something to read, read that. Um, but he begins his final chapter like this. He says this. He says, at the end of the Second World War, there was a significant change in the predominant aim of secular intellectuals, a shift of emphasis from utopianism to hedonism. Okay? And after reading the previous 12 chapters, it's quite clear what happened. You see, Europe moved from the Enlightenment to Romanticism to the Industrial Revolution to the Scientific Revolution to the rise of the nation-state to the utopian idea that all this progress would eventually produce a perfect community or nation-state that would end suffering, enter communism, socialism, democracy, fascism. These were all focuses and emphasis to create the perfect society that would end and alleviate all suffering. But this idealized notion of utopia, well, it came crashing down after two wars of incredible atrocities and suffering. These dark realities forced the, the secular intellectuals away from large-scale utopian dreams, those can't be found anymore, and towards inward hedonism. And, and uh, the shift can really be understood like this. If we can't satisfy everyone, utopianism, at least we can satisfy the self, hedonism. Now, don't get turned off at this word hedonism. Paul Johnson doesn't use it in its everyday connotations it like partying, drunkenness, sex, and, and all that stuff. He's using it in the base sense that it denotes a focus on the needs and the desires of an individual. People, particularly intellectuals, they became focused on how to advance the self in a messed up world. If we get a perfect society, I'm going to look out for number one. It's a very natural response. Very, very natural response. North America, we always lag behind European cultural stuff a little bit, but eventually caught up in this transition from utopianism to hedonism. The utopian democratic dream, it was alive for the most part several decades after World War II but eventually it comes cra crashing down through atrocities that, that we, we see, primarily through the distrust of our leadership, we throw Nixon under the bus, I guess. It's really where we see that the, the, the leaders of this democratic republic seem to be serving their own needs above that of the greater populace. I'm sure you guys can't think of any other examples of that. But, but this is what I, I, I want you to see, okay? The shift from utopianism to hedonism does not change the central message of we can fix it. This is what people miss. It's just changed the scope to which that statement is applied. It's just redefined what the it is. Hedonism means that we apply the fixing to the self. To the self. The, the West has shifted from focusing on progressing towards perfect utopian democratic state to progressing the individual. We've become preoccupied with how we might progress ourselves in a messed up world. Very natural response. How can I progress as a person? What can I do to grow? What can I do to fully realize my potential? We say these things. What can I do to achieve the lifestyle that I want, to have the experiences that I want to experience, to see the growth that I want to see? How can I fix myself? This is the water that we've been swimming in. And Christian humility says that we're unable to, to progress even the microcosm of the self on our own. We need God to do that. If we're honest with our individual progress, when it's done on our own energy, it stalls, it wanes, it digresses, takes advantage of others to better the self. So these two attitudes, these two attitudes, I'm not that bad, I can fix itself, these are the natural human reactions to brokenness. I got on a bike accident almost four months ago now. I broke my collarbone, top eight ribs, punctured a lung in the hospital for four days. You know what my knee-jerk attitudes have been after that? It's not that bad. We're going to fix it. It's driven everybody closest to me crazy. Because <laughs> they know it's not true. It's not true. So let's walk it all the way back then, okay? Uh, this is what we do with brokenness. If, if you tuned out, here's a summary of the past 15 minutes or so, okay? Here's a summary of the past 15 minutes. 
Humility comes from rejecting the attitude of it's not that bad and we can fix it. Or you could say I'm not that bad and, and, and I can fix myself. When we reject those notions, we have the opportunity to gain humility. True humility leads to accepting the word of the Lord, which leads to considering the word of the Lord, which leads to magnifying God, which is giving him influence in all areas of your life. And I don't care if this is your first time back in church in a decade. If you can admit there's a problem with you and are considering whether Jesus might be the solution, you're dangerously close to magnifying God in your life. Maybe just a few days, a few weeks, a few months away from that. Dangerously close. Just like Mary. What's made abundantly clear in this song is that Mary conceives of herself very humbly as having nothing. She's of humble, humble estate. Her family is poor. And verse 53, she counts herself among the hungry. Now, I said way back at the beginning that Mary tells us of her most basic need then. Okay? So let's Look at it. Um, Mary contrasts herself with another group of people in this song. That's the mighty and the proud who have everything. They have everything. They have all the resources, the riches, the power, and the influence. But look what happens to them. Verse 51. He, that is God, has shown strength with his arm, and he has scattered the proud in their thoughts. That is they become incredibly anxious. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. They become poor, don't have control, and exalted those of humble estate. Verse 53, he has filled the hunger with good things, but the rich, well, he's sent away empty. They filled themselves up with everything except God, and all of the alternatives eventually left them anxious, poor, and hungry. But she says that from now on, verse 48, all generations will call her little, poor, pregnant teenage Mary blessed. How can this be? It's because she has received something that has met her deepest needs and desires that the proud and mighty have tried unsuccessfully to fill. She has received God himself. She originally came to God, came to God humble, poor, Hungry, and she received a God who she said is holy. Verse 49, she says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Uh, in, in Hebrew culture, someone's name was often used to describe the essence of who they were. Mary says, God's name is holy. It's holy. Holy meant something that was set aside, it was unique, irreplaceable, it was pure. And so with this phrase, Mary is saying that God is unique, irreplaceable, and pure. There's nothing in the world like him. We all have this unique void in our life which, for which this uniqueness of God is the only thing that will satisfy it. Anything else we try to fit in that, that size need hole, it won't satisfy long term. God has met Mary's deepest need and desire by giving her himself. God gave Mary his very self. And it's this giving that has created an amazing megalune in her life. She's magnifying him. Mary's experience tells us that our basic need and desire is God. Sometimes we don't know it. But when you go out and have conversations with people in this city, it's incredible. Sometimes I walk away from people who aren't Christian, and I'm like, they really desire Jesus. That, that, it's so clear. They're, so, they're looking for it so intently. I just had a great conversation about God with them, and they almost dared to hope it was true. What does it mean that our greatest need is God giving himself? What does it mean when someone freely gives himself to someone else? What actually is that? We're going to put a word to it. It's love. It's love. John 15, Jesus says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down their life for their friends, that someone would give up their very self for someone else. That's love. Of course, John tells us in 1 John 4, 8, that God is love, so we should expect him to give up his life for us, give himself to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. God's perfect love then is seen 
in his giving of himself for the joy of others. He, he doesn't love us in the sense that he loves pizza or loves the TV show The Office, although I'm sure he loves both of those things. He doesn't love us how we love our friends, our lovers. He loves us with a love that generously gives his very self in abundance for our benefit. This is the strange thing about God. He is completely self-sufficient. He was eternally happy without us. He was fine. The loving relationships of the Trinity. He had no need for love himself, but he looked to satisfy it with creation. He, he's not, he didn't make it. It's like, I just need some more love, create some people to love me. No. And instead, he created humanity because he desires to give love. It's out of the overflow of God's love that we were created, which tells us very interesting. The moment that he created, he actually had in mind the crucifixion. We're not on a plan B. This is the entire plan for God to give himself to us. It's part and parcel of why we were fundamentally made was to receive love. It's the reason for which he created us, to give himself to us out of his abundance. It's the reason for which we're made. When God gives us himself, when he gives his self to us then, it fills our deepest need and desire. It tells us that despite our humble, poor, twisted state, that God gives us his very self, an action of love where we discovered that we're not just accepted, but treasured. And why are we treasured? Simply because we can receive his love. Not anything we've done, not anything intrinsically great about us, but he treasures us because we can receive his love. That's it. God created, he had an abundance of love. He desired somewhere to put it. And so he made you. Receiving God's love is our originally intended function. It's what it means to be human. To be loved enough that someone would sacrifice themselves for us is the, the very thing that we sometimes dare to hope is true. And the advent of Jesus says, it is. This incredible love of God is present in embryonic form in the womb of Mary. She experienced it. Magnified God. Gave him increasing influence over all her life. And this love of God, it grew up. Jesus' life was characterized by a love for humanity. And by that, I mean, we see Jesus give himself to humans over and over and over again. See it in the gospel accounts during his life. He served. He sacrificially loved. He became homeless so that he could tell people about God's love for them. He gave up everything. God had complete influence over his life. In fact, those who are most acquainted with their depravity when they encounter Jesus, most familiar with their twisted nature, most aware of their dark corners, that is, those who had humility, those are the ones who are most able to receive the word of God. John chapter 1 likens the word of God to Jesus. You can receive Jesus with a humble heart only. It's, it's the self-giving love that found complete expression on the cross for the rest of us to see, where Jesus Christ opened his arms wide to a twisted and dark humanity that's made in the image of God and says, I'm giving myself to you so that you can function to receive my love again, which in turn is going to cause you to magnify my name, give me increasing influence in all areas of your life. God wants to give his very self in the most beautiful picture of love to us. And, and, and for those who receive it, there's more. This is what the really cool thing is, Okay. We gain God's love not just through God giving himself on the cross and reading about it and, and looking at it and remembering it, but all, Christian get to, all Christians get to experience what Mary experienced in her pregnancy, to have the Son of God dwell within her. All who receive the word of God are gifted the Holy Spirit from the Lord. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that this spirit is that which mediates the love of the Father to us, so much so that it agrees with our spirit and, and helps us cry out, Abba, Father, we're loved. We're incredibly loved. It's Romans chapter 8. You too have been given God in your very being. The Holy Spirit mediates it to us. It, it, it can be an experience for you. Now, now, up to this point, we've remained very vague at talking about what it actually looks like to give God increasing influence in your life, right? 
But, but, but this is what it looks like. This is where you start. This is from the entirety of the New Testament. It speaks to this. We begin to let the self-giving love of God work through us by loving one another. By loving one another. By loving someone else without self-interest and receiving love from our fellow brother and sister as well. Both of those are important. You see that? You can't give love to somebody unless they receive it, which means that you're going to be on the receiving end sometimes. But it's okay. That's the reason for which you've been made to receive love. Don't be too prideful to receive somebody else's love. I'm guilty of that all the time. Informed by the life of death in Christ and empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit, that we love one another. It's only because God first loved us, but we have a picture of how he gave himself so we give ourselves to one another. Now, in the past, American Christianity has said that in order to experience this kind of love, what are you going to need? You're going to need a marriage relationship. That this is the place where, where this kind of love is learned and fostered, but that couldn't be further from the truth. The entirety of the New Testament scriptures say what you need is the local church, the person to the right of you and the person to the left of you, to begin to selflessly give without self-interest and receive what other people are giving to you. This is the community and the arena of which we get to experience the love of God towards one another, experience and practice it, the church and as you walk through your Christian life and lean into, into magnifying God, you'll find something very, very peculiar happen. It's very peculiar. <clears throat> you're going to give him more and more influence in your life. What you're going to find is that you need other people less and less and less. But you're going to love them more and more and more. It's a very interesting thing that happens over the course of your life. You become more independent from needing love, yet you still receive it, and you pour out more love towards other people. <clears throat> this, is, this is Christian maturation and growth. The only way it can come is through daring to believe that this perfect self-giving love exists, is available for you, humbling, humbly accepting the word of the Lord, considering it, letting it sink deep into your soul, and then you'll find Jesus, just like he came into the world 2,000 years ago the love of the self-giving Christ, and he promises to come again, and he'll give himself even more fully so that we can experience his kingdom. He'll come into your life now, and he'll love the world through you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, uh, right now we come to you as, as your children, as the family of God, and, and God, I just ask that you would make your giving, your self-giving nature, your love for us, so apparent to us in this Advent season. Lord, would you just um, give us a fresh glimpse of all that you've done through Christ, through your Spirit, and as the Father. Give us a, a fresh taste of, of how you have given yourself to us. Remind us of the love that you have for us, even experientially. Right now, I pray that you would conjure up in all of our hearts intense magalune, magnification of you, even in this time of worship, that we would humbly accept your word so that we can sing praises to you. Pray for my friends who are still considering this, perhaps even for the first time. Would you continue to reveal your, your love to them, your self-giving nature to them? Would they begin to even dare to believe that it could be true? Amen. Each and every week at Sedaris, we remember the Lord's death, and um, we do that to remember his love for us, that he chose to give himself away, that he chose to come in the flesh and live the life that we can't live and don't live, and die the death that we should die in our place. And then he rose from the grave so that we might follow him into new life, life abundantly, and um, just one of the things as Ryan was preaching that I thought about was just how God's choosing of Mary had nothing to do uh, with who she was or how she would respond, um, and his choosing of us is the same. He does not choose to love us because we are somehow lovely or we are somehow righteous or we are somehow, he sees into our future and knows that we'll be the ones that come to church and do the right thing. That's not why he chooses us. He chooses us because 
He wants to choose us. And he came to die for us because he wanted to. That's his love for us. And so whether you've come to church today feeling far from God, uh, feeling that you've lived a life worthy of his sacrifice, lived a life worthy of him coming near to you, um, or not, this table's for you. If you have, as Ryan said, the humility to receive, that's your love for God, receiving. You do not love God in the same way that he loves you. He chose you. That's his love for you. You receive him. That's your love for God. And so no matter where you are, no matter what you've done this week or this year or this decade, this is for you. But you must humble yourself and know that God chose you not because of who you are, but because of who he is. So I deliver to you what I also receive. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread with his disciples and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then he picked up the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which I'm about to pour out for many for the forgiveness of sin. He said, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim my death until I come again and eat with you in my new kingdom. So if you're trusting in Jesus, if you've humbled your heart, if you've surrendered to the fact that you are not lovable, except that God chose to love you, and you want to receive that love as an act of worship to magnify his name in the God that chooses, if you want that, then you come to this table, you rip off a piece of the bread, and you dip it in the cup, and you eat it as a way of symbolizing that this is your relationship to God, the God who chooses you, the God who you receive as your own, just as Mary received the Spirit of God. And God will fill you with his presence, and he will change lives around you as you learn to love in the same way, not seeing something lovable in your neighbor, in your fellow brother or sister in Christ, but choosing to love them because Christ chose to love you. And this is the way that the light of Christ, that's why we have these candles here, begins to fill the darkness, begins to fill the darkness of this city, and it begins by you receiving. So when you're ready to receive the love of God given to you as a gift in Christ Jesus your Lord who died for your sin and rose again to prove that it was finished, come to this table and have fellowship with Jesus.